Section 6 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer W. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 1. Section 3. Chapter 2. Of the Origin of Ambition and of the Distinction of Ranks. It is because mankind are disposed to sympathize more entirely with our joy than with our sorrow that we make parade of our riches and conceal our poverty. Nothing is so mortifying as to be obliged to expose our distress to the view of the public, and to feel that though our situation is open to the eyes of all mankind, no mortal conceives for us half of what we suffer. Nay, it is chiefly from this regard to the sentiments of mankind that we pursue riches and avoid poverty. For to what purpose is all the toil and bustle of this world? What is the end of avarice and ambition, of the pursuit of wealth, of power and preeminence? Is it to supply the necessities of nature? The wages of the meanest laborer can supply them. We see that they afford him food and clothing, the comfort of a house and of a family. If we examined his economy with rigor, we should find that he spends a great part of them upon conveniences, which may regard it as superfluities, and that upon extraordinary occasions he can give something even to vanity and distinction. What then is the cause of our aversion to his situation, and why should those who have been educated in the higher ranks of life regard it as worse than death to be reduced to live, even without labor, upon the simple fare with him, to dwell under the same lowly roof, and to be clothed in the same humble attire? Do they imagine that their stomach is better, or that their sleep sounder in a palace than in a cottage? The contrary has been so often observed, and, indeed, is so very obvious, though it had never been observed, that there is nobody ignorant of it. From whence, then, arises that emulation which runs through all the different ranks of men? And what are the advantages which we propose by that great purpose of human life which we call bettering our condition? To be observed, to be attended to, to be taken notice of with sympathy, complacency, and approbation, all are the advantages which we can propose to derive from it. It is the vanity, not the ease or the pleasure, which interests us. The vanity is always founded upon the belief of our being the object of attention and approbation. The rich man glories in his riches because he feels that they naturally draw upon him the attention of the world and that mankind are disposed to go along with him in all those agreeable emotions in which the advantages of his situation so readily inspire him. At the thought of this, his heart seems to swell and dilate itself within him, and he is the fonder of his wealth upon this account than for all the other advantages it procures him. The poor man, on the contrary, is ashamed of his poverty. He feels that it either places him out of the sight of mankind, or that if they take any notice of him, they have, however, scarce any fellow-feeling with the misery and distress which he suffers. He is mortified upon both accounts. For though to be overlooked and to be disapproved of are things entirely different, yet as obscurity covers us from the daylight of honor and approbation, to feel that we are taken no notice of necessarily damps the most agreeable hope and disappoints the most ardent desire of human nature. The poor man goes out and comes in unheeded, and when in the midst of a crowd is in the same obscurity as if shut up in his own hovel. Those humble cares and painful attentions which occupy those in his situation afford no amusement to the dissipated and the gay. 
they turn their eyes from him or if the extremity of his distress forces them to look at him it is only to spurn so disagreeable an object from among them the fortunate and the proud wonder at the insolence of human wretchedness that it should dare to present itself before them and with the loathsome aspect of its misery presume to disturb the serenity of their happiness the man of rank and distinction on the contrary is observed by all the world everybody is eager to look at him and to conceive at least by sympathy that joy and exultation with which his circumstances naturally inspire him his actions are the object of the public care scarce a word scarce a gesture can fall from him that is altogether neglected in a great assembly he is the person upon whom all direct their eyes it is upon him that their passions seem to wait with expectation it is upon him that their passions seem all to wait with expectation in order to receive that movement and direction which he shall impress upon them and if his behavior is not altogether absurd he has every moment an opportunity of interesting mankind and of rendering himself the object of the observation and fellow-feeling of everybody about him it is this which notwithstanding the restraint it imposes notwithstanding the loss of liberty with which it is attended renders greatness the object of envy and compensates in the opinion of all those mortifications which must mankind all that toil all that anxiety be undergone in the pursuit of it and what is of yet more consequence all that leisure all that ease all that careless security which are forfeited for ever by the acquisition when we consider the condition of the great in those delusive colors in which the imagination is apt to paint it it seems to be almost the abstract idea of a perfect and happy state it is the very state which in all our waking dreams and idle reveries we had sketched out to find ourselves as the final object of all our desires we feel therefore peculiar sympathy with the satisfaction of those who are in it we favor all their inclinations and forward all their wishes what pity we think that anything should spoil and corrupt so agreeable a situation we should even wish them immortal and it seems hard to us that death should at last put an end to such perfect enjoyment it is cruel we think in nature to compel them from their exalted stations to that humble but hospitable home which she has provided for all her children great king live forever it is the compliment which after the manner of eastern adulation we would readily make them if experience did not teach us its absurdity every calamity that befalls them every injury that is done them excites in the breast of the spectators ten times more compassion and resentment than he would have felt had the same things happened to other men it is the misfortunes of kings only which afford the proper subjects for tragedy they resemble in this respect the misfortunes of lovers those two situations are the chief which interest us upon the theatre because in spite of all that reason and experience can tell us to the contrary the prejudices of the imagination attach to these two states a happiness superior to any other to disturb or to put an end to such perfect enjoyment seems to be the most atrocious of all injuries the traitor who conspires against the life of his monarch is thought a greater monster than any other murderer all the innocent blood that was shed in the civil wars provoked less indignation than the death of charles the first 
a stranger to human nature, who saw the indifference of the a stranger to human nature, who saw the indifference of men about the misery of their inferiors, and the regret and indignation which they feel for the misfortunes and suffering of those above them, would be apt to imagine that pain must be more agonizing, and the convulsions of death more terrible to persons of higher rank than to those of meaner stations. Upon this disposition of mankind to go along with all the passions of the rich and powerful, is founded the distinction of ranks, and the order of society. Our obsequiousness to our superiors more frequently arises from our admiration for the advantages of their situation than from any private expectations of benefit from their good will. Their benefits can extend but to a few, but their fortunes interest almost everybody. We are eager to assist them in completing a system of happiness that approaches so near to perfection, and we desire to serve them for their own sake, without any other recompense but the vanity or the honor of obliging them. Neither is our deference to their inclinations founded chiefly, or altogether, upon a regard to the utility of such submission, and to the order of society which is best supported by it. Even when the order of society seems to require that we should oppose them, we can hardly bring ourselves to do it. That kings are the servants of the people, to be obeyed, resisted, deposed, or punished, as the public conveniency may require, is the doctrine of reason and philosophy, but it is not the doctrine of nature. Nature would teach us to submit to them for their own sake, to tremble and bow down before their exalted station, to regard their smile as reward sufficient to compensate any services, and to dread their displeasure, though no other evil were to follow from it as the severest of all mortifications, to treat them in any respect as men, to reason and dispute with them upon ordinary occasions requires such resolution that there are few men whose magnanimity can support them in it, unless they are likewise assisted by familiarity and acquaintance. The strongest motives, the most furious passions, fear, hatred, and resentment, are scarce sufficient to balance this natural disposition to respect them, and their conduct must, either justly or unjustly, have excited the highest degree of all those passions, before the bulk of the people can be brought to oppose them with violence, or to desire to see them either punished or deposed. Even when the people have been brought to this length, they are apt to relent every moment, and easily relapse into their habitual state of deference to those whom they have been accustomed to look upon as their natural superiors. They cannot stand the mortification of their monarch. Compassion soon takes the place of resentment, they forget all past provocations, and their old principles of loyalty revive, and they run to re-establish the ruined authority of their old masters, with the same violence with which they had opposed it. The death of Charles I brought about the restoration of the royal family. Compassion for James II, when he was seized by the populace in making his escape on shipboard, had almost prevented the revolution, and made it go on more heavily than before. To the great seamen sensible of the easy price at which they may acquire the public admiration, or do they seem to imagine that to them, as to other men, it must be the purchase either of sweat or of blood? By what important accomplishments is the young nobleman instructed to support the dignity of his rank, and to render himself worthy of that superiority over his fellow-citizens, to which the virtue of his ancestors had raised them? Is it by knowledge, by industry, by patience, by self-denial, or by virtue of any kind? 
as all his words, as all his motions are attended to, he learns an habitual regard to every circumstance of ordinary behavior, and studies to perform all those small duties with the most exact propriety. As he is conscious of how much he is observed, and how much mankind are disposed to favor all his inclinations, he acts upon the most indifferent occasions with the freedom and elevation which the thought of this naturally inspires. His air, his manner, his deportment, all mark of that elegant and graceful sense of his own superiority, which those who are born to inferior stations could hardly ever arrive at. These are the arts by which he proposes to make mankind more easily submit to his authority, and to govern their inclinations according to his own pleasure. And in this he is seldom disappointed. These arts, supported by rank and preeminence, are, upon ordinary occasions, sufficient to govern the world. Louis the Fourteenth, during the greater part of his reign, was regarded, not only in France, but all over Europe, as the most perfect model of a great prince. But what were the talents and virtues by which he acquired this great reputation? Was it by the scrupulous and inflexible justice of all his undertakings, by the immense dangers and difficulties with which they were attended, or by the unwearied and unrelenting application with which he pursued them? Was it by his extensive knowledge, by his exquisite judgment, or by his heroic valor? It was by none of these qualities. But he was, first of all, the most powerful prince in Europe, and consequently held the highest rank among kings. And then, says his historian, he surpassed all his courtiers in the gracefulness of his shape, and the majestic beauty of his features. The sound of his voice, noble and affecting, gained those hearts which his presence intimidated. He had a step and a deportment which would suit only him and his rank, and which would have been ridiculous in any other person. The embarrassment which he occasioned to those who spoke to him flattered that secret satisfaction with which he felt his own superiority. The old officer, who was confounded and faltered in asking him a favor, and not being able to conclude his discourse, said to him, "'Sir, your majesty, I, I hope, will believe that I do not tremble thus before your enemies,' had no difficulty to obtain what he demanded. These frivolous accomplishments, supported by his rank, and no doubt, too, by a degree of other talents and virtues, which seems, however, not to have been much above mediocrity, established this prince in the esteem of his own age, and have drawn, even from posterity, a good deal of respect for his memory. Compared with these, in his own times, and in his own presence, no other virtue, it seems, appeared to have any merit. Knowledge, industry, valor, beneficence, trembled, were ashamed, and lost all dignity before them. But it is not by accomplishments of this kind that the man of inferior rank must hope to distinguish himself. Politeness is so much the virtue of the great, that it will do little honor to anybody but themselves. The coxcomb, who imitates their manner, and affects to be eminent by the superior propriety of his ordinary behavior, is rewarded with a double share of contempt for his folly and presumption. Why would the man, whom nobody thinks it's worth while to look at, be very anxious about the manner in which he holds up his head, or disposes of his arms while he walks through the room? He is occupied, surely, with a very superfluous attention, and with an attention, too, that marks a sense of his own importance, which no other mortal can go along with. 
the most perfect modesty and plainness, joined to as much negligence as is consistent with the respect due to the company, ought to be the chief characteristics of the behavior of a private man. If he ever hopes to distinguish himself, it must be by more important virtues. He must acquire dependence to balance the dependence of the greats, and he has no other fund to pay them from but the labor of his body and the activity of his mind. He must cultivate these, therefore. He must acquire superior knowledge in his profession and superior industry in the exercise of it. He must be patient in labor, resolute in danger, and firm in distress. These talents he must bring into public view, by the difficulty, importance, and at the same time good judgment of his undertakings, and by the severe and unrelenting application with which he pursues them probity and prudence, generosity and frankness, must characterize his behavior upon all ordinary occasions, and he must, at the same time, be forward to engage in all those situations in which it requires the greatest talents and virtues to act with propriety, but in which the greatest applause is to be acquired by those who can acquit themselves with honor. With what impatience does a man of spirit and ambition, who is depressed by his situation, look round for some great opportunity to distinguish himself? No circumstances which can afford this appear to him undesirable. He even looks forward with satisfaction to the prospect of foreign war or civil dissension, and with secret transport and delight sees through all the confusion and bloodshed which attend them to the probability of those wished-for occasions presenting themselves in which he may draw upon himself the attention and admiration of mankind. The man of rank and distinction, on the contrary, whose whole glory consists in the propriety of his ordinary behavior, who is contented with the humble renown which this can afford him, and has no talents to acquire any other, is unwilling to embarrass himself with what can be attended either with difficulty or distress. To figure at a ball is his great triumph, and to succeed in an intrigue of gallantry his highest exploit. He has an aversion to all public confusions, not from the love of mankind, for the great never look upon their inferiors as their fellow-creatures, nor yet from one of courage, for in that he is seldom defective, but from a consciousness that he possesses none of the virtues which are required in such situations, and that the public attention will certainly be drawn away from him by others. He may be willing to expose himself to some little danger, and to make a campaign when it appears to be the fashion but he shudders with horror the thought of any situation which demands the continual and long exertion of patience, industry, fortitude, and application of thought. These virtues are hardly ever to be met with in men who are born to those high stations. In all governments accordingly, even in monarchies, the highest offices are generally possessed, and the whole detail of the administration conducted by men who were educated in the middle and inferior ranks of life, who have been carried forward by their own industry and abilities, though loaded with jealousy, and opposed by the resentment of all those who were born their superiors, and to whom the great, after having regarded them first with contempt and afterwards with envy, are at last contented to truckle in the same abject meanness with which they desire that the rest of mankind should behave to themselves. It is the loss of this easy empire over the affections of mankind which renders the fall from greatness so insupportable. When the family of the king of Macedon was led in triumph by Paulus Amelius, their misfortunes, it said, made them divide with their conqueror the attention of the Roman people. 
the sight of the royal children, whose tender age rendered them insensible of their situation, struck the spectators, amidst the public rejoicing and prosperity, with the tenderest sorrow and compassion. The king appeared next in the procession, and seemed like one confounded and astonished, and bereft of all sentiment by the greatness of his calamities. His friends and ministers followed him. As they moved along, they often cast their eyes upon the fallen sovereign, and always burst into tears at the sight, their whole behavior demonstrating that they thought not of their own misfortunes, but were occupied entirely by the superior greatness of his. The generous Romans, on the contrary, beheld him with disdain and indignation, and regarded as unworthy of all compassion the man who could be so mean-spirited as to bear to live under such calamities. Yet what did these calamities amount to? According to the greater part of historians, he was to spend the remainder of his days under the protection of a power and humane people, in a state which in itself would seem worthy of envy, a state of plenty, ease, leisure, and security, from which it was impossible for him, even by his own folly, to fall. But he was no longer to be surrounded by the admiring mob of fools, flatterers, and dependents who had formerly been accustomed to attend upon all his motions. He was no longer to be gazed upon by the multitudes, nor to have it in his power to render himself the object of their respect, their gratitude, their love, their admiration. The passions of nations were no longer to mould themselves upon his inclinations. This was that insupportable calamity which bereaved the king of all sentiment, which made his friends forget their own misfortunes, and which the Roman magnanimity could scarce conceive how any man could be so mean-spirited as to bear to survive." Love, says my lord Rochefoucauld, is commonly succeeded by ambition, but ambition is hardly ever succeeded by love. That passion, once it has got entire possession of the breast, will admit neither a rival nor a successor. To those who have been accustomed to the possession, or even to the hope of public admiration, all other pleasures sicken and decay. Of all the discarded statesmen who, for their own ease, have studied to get the better of ambition, and to despise those honors which they could no longer arrive at, how few have been able to succeed! The greater part have spent their time in the most listless and insipid indolence, chagrined at the thoughts of their own insignificancy, incapable of being interested in the occupations of private life, without enjoyment, except when they talked of their former greatness, and without satisfaction, except when they were employed in some vain project to recover it. Are you in earnest resolved never to barter your liberty for the lordly servitude of a court, but to live free, fearless, and independent? There seems to be one way to continue in that virtuous resolution, and perhaps but one. Never enter the place from which so few have been able to return, never come within the circle of ambition, nor ever bring yourself into comparison with those masters of the earth who have already engrossed the attention of half mankind before you. Of such mighty importance does it appear to be, in the imaginations of men, to stand in that situation which sets them most in the view of general sympathy and attention and thus place that great object which divides the wives of aldermen, is the end half of the labors of human life, and is the cause of all tumult and bustle, all the raping and injustice which avarice and ambition have introduced into this world. People of sense, it is said, indeed despise place, that is, they despise sitting at the head of the table, and are indifferent to who it is that is pointed out to the company by that frivolous circumstance, which a smallest advantage is capable of overbalancing. 
but rank, distinction, preeminence, no man despises, unless he is either raised very much above or sunk very much below the ordinary standard of human nature, unless he is either so confirmed in wisdom and real philosophy as to be satisfied that, while the propriety of his conduct renders him the just object of approbation, it is of little consequence, though he be neither attended to nor approved of or so habituated to the idea of his own meanness, so sunk in slothful and sottish indifference, as entirely to have forgot the desire, and almost the very wish, for superiority. As to become the natural object of the joyous congratulations and sympathetic attentions of mankind is, in this manner, the circumstance which gives to prosperity all its dazzling splendor, so nothing darkens so much the gloom of adversity as to feel that our misfortunes are the objects, not of the fellow-feeling, but of the contempt and aversion of our brethren. It is upon this account that the most dreadful calamities are not always those in which it is most difficult to support. It is often more mortifying to appear in public under small disasters than under great misfortunes. The first excite no sympathy, but the second, though they may excite none that approaches to the anguish of the sufferer, call forth, however, a very lively compassion. The sentiments of the spectators are, in the last case, less wide of those of the sufferer, and their imperfect fellow-feeling lends him some assistance in supporting his misery. Before a gay assembly, a gentleman would be more mortified to appear covered with filth and rags than with blood and wounds. This last situation would interest their pity, the other would provoke their laughter. The judge who orders a criminal to be set in the pillory dishonors him more than if he had condemned him to the scaffold. The great prince, who some years ago caned a general officer at the head of his army, disgraced him irrevocably. The punishment would have been much less had he shot him through the body. But the laws of honor, to strike with a cane dishonors, to strike with a sword does not, for an obvious reason. These slighter punishments, when inflicted on a gentleman to whom dishonor is the greatest of all evils, come to be regarded among a humane and generous people as the most dreadful of any. With regard to persons of that rank, therefore, they are universally laid aside, and the law, while it takes their life upon many occasions, respects their honor upon almost all. To scourge a person of quality, or to set him in a pillory, upon account of any crime whatever, is a brutality which no European government, except that of Russia, is capable. A brave man is not rendered contemptible by being brought to the scaffold. He is by being set in the pillory. His behavior in the one situation may gain him universal esteem and admiration. No behavior in the other can render him agreeable. The sympathy of the spectators supports him in the one case, and saves him from that shame, that consciousness that his misery is felt by himself only, which is of all sentiments the most unsupportable. There is no sympathy in the other, or, if there is any, it is not with his pain, which is a trifle, but with his consciousness of the want of sympathy with which this pain is attended. It is with his shame, not with his sorrow. Those who pity him blush and hang down their heads for him. He droops in the same manner, and he feels himself irrevocably degraded by the punishment, though not by the crime. The man, on the contrary, who dies with resolution, as he is naturally regarded with the erect aspect of esteem and approbation, so he wears himself 
the same undaunted countenance, and, if the crime does not deprive him of the respect of others, the punishment never will. He has no suspicion that his situation is the object of contempt or derision to anybody, and he can, with propriety, assume the air not only of perfect serenity, but of triumph and exultation. Great dangers, says the Cardinal de Ritz, have their charms, because there is some glory to be got, even when we miscarry. But moderate dangers have nothing but what is horrible, because the loss of reputation always attends the want of success. His maxim has the same foundation with what we have been just now observing with regard to punishments. Human virtue is superior to pain, to poverty, to danger, and to death nor does it even require its utmost efforts to despise them. But to have its misery exposed to insult and derision, to be led in triumph, to be set up for the hand of scorn to point at, is a situation in which its constancy is much more apt to fail. Compared with the contempt of mankind, all other external evils are easily supported. End of section 6